Hello, I'm Emily Bellet, founder of BestPod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich. You're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. What are some of the things that we are most afraid of or most dread when it comes to money? What is the lifestyle creep and how to plan for your finances in 2024? There's a lot of pressure on all sides at this time of the year, from inflation to higher interest rates. So we felt it was the right time to stop and look at strategies for next year. My guest today is Laura Newman, head of NatWest Specialist Client Advice and Investment Services. Laura is passionate about helping people do more with their money and grow wealth. We talk about perspectives of wealth and how it differs between demographics, some of the obstacles women face as they go through different life stages, and how working with a financial planner can help you plan for the future. This episode is sponsored by NatWest Premier. NatWest Premier offers 24-7 financial advice and planning from in-house experts, insurance coverage, real writing, and executor services. Whether it's discovering ways to make your money grow or planning your next goal, your premier manager will help you take your money to the next level so that it serves all your needs. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Especially now as we're coming up to Christmas, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit about what are the biggest cost of living issues that people are facing right now. I think everyone at the moment is impacted by rising inflation, rising interest rates, albeit they are starting to come down. But I think it it impacts different groups by different amounts. Of course, affluent people who we work very much with from a premier perspective are more protected from it than, say, the vast majority of Britons. However, they've most likely never seen these high level interest rates before. And I think now are needing to make changes on how they manage their finances and be more financially resilient. However, I really do think budgets will be a lot tighter um, for, for everybody across, across the country. And I think they're expect, people are expected to buy fewer and cheaper items this Christmas as the cost of living prices forces many just to rein in on those celebrations, which sometimes isn't a bad thing. No, I, I agree with you. And with the you know, rise of, of consumerism, we, we're talking a lot about having a more maybe you know, sust- sustainable Christmas. And this year, we, we may actually be forced to do that. And, and we see this, I, I mean, you talked about that, like inflation, rising interest rates. We see a lot of pressure um, on, on all sides uh, at, at this time of the year. So do you have any tips for people to help um, manage financially this, this Christmas? Yeah, do you know, I think less is more. So um, there's a tremendous amount of pressure to please everyone with lavish gifts. But sometimes the simple, more thoughtful ones, um, I think, provide better memories. Um, And I think rather than actually exceed your budget, think about what what you can give. Um, Ensure you speak to your family, your friends and manage expectations Perhaps find something different to do, um, say as a collective, say an experience or an outing, which everyone can share, but also treasure those memories. I think something that's really quite fun is Secret Santa. Um, It limits the budget. um, It creates an experience of fun and laughter. Uh, And above all, one tip I would give, I just do believe we shouldn't overspend as the January blues are hard enough and facing huge credit card bills post the lavish, lavish Christmas. Um, could actually set you on the wrong path for the new year in 2024. 
I love your idea of, of Secret Santa. It's even something my, my kids have been doing at, at school. They had to exchange homemade gifts and DIY. So I feel it was a lot of work for parents, but, you know, <laughs> it's just finding new ideas and, and being a bit more creative around Christmas and, you know, nice cards, books, um, you know, th th these are amazing, amazing gifts. Um, but now that, you know, we, we in December, Christmas is coming and you're talking about, you know, January and, and what's going to happen in, in the new year. So when we, when, you know, we're recovering from the festivities, uh, maybe, you know, we managed to take time off during the holidays. What are some small things we can, we can implement to improve our, our short-term uh, financial situations when, you know, when we go back in, in January? I think it's a great time, new year, um, to sit down and think about both your short-term, but also your medium-term and longer-term financial uh, situation. I think um, I think if you look at your financial situation at the start of the new year and then think hard about how you're going to budget, and I think budgeting for 2024 will be even more important um, for, for clients across the board. Um, I'm very much a believer, if you can, build a budget based on your savings goals rather than based on your spending expenses. In doing so, you actually ensure that every month money gets allocated to your future Set aside a portion of your income, say somewhere between 10 and 20 percent for savings and or investments before you actually allocate money for other expenses. In essence, I very much see um, a percentage of your salary as an advance for your future planning. So what you're paid now is actually for that future planning in years to come. There's a 50-30-20 rule, 50 percent of your money towards your needs now, 30 percent towards your wants and 20% towards savings. I think it's also very important to think about any debt that you currently have and to pay down that short-term debt or refinance at a more competitive rate. The new year is never such a, a great time to sit down and really think about how you can properly plan and budget for the whole of the financial year. Thanks for sharing uh, this, this budgeting rule or, or, or benchmark. And of course, I guess everyone will have uh, you know different percentages, but just the the simple action of sitting down, looking at, you know, your bank account, uh, how you've been, you know, spending your money. And, and as you say, I think starting from a saving plan and aligning uh, what you want to save with your financial goals um, is, is is motivating. That will help you, you know, have a much broader vision from the short to the, and you mentioned that from the, you know, short to medium to, to long term. So that's really interesting. And January, yeah, it's, I think it's a good resolution to have it, you know, <laughs> sit down uh, on your own or with your advisor and, you know, start looking at, at your budget for, for next year. But now I feel... People may also be worried uh, about finances. You talked about repaying uh, debt, especially short-term debt that can be really expensive. What are some of the things that people are most afraid of or dread um, when it comes to, to money? Financial literacy. Um, people can feel embarrassed mm -hmm. that they don't know enough about managing their money. And, it, and in times, it can just be the basics. And I think that's why it's really, really important. And it's really important to have a good relationship with your bank who can explain things clearly and in simple terms without that expectation that uh, you would necessarily need to understand absolutely everything and I and one piece of advice I would give no question is a silly question it's really important that if it's a question that's pertinent to you that you ask that question 
and someone from your bank or, or your advisor or your tax advisor can help and support you in terms of answering those questions and put you in a far better position. Yeah, it's always uh, during our workshops and classes, we talk about this, these silly questions and that, like there's no silly question. And, and you can be sure that if you have a question, you're not going to be the only one in, in, the, in the room. So ask, ask the questions. And, and actually, as we're talking about, you know, relationship with, with your bank and, and not being worried about, you know, becoming like more literate about personal finances and asking questions. I think a big part of, of people dreading taxes or investment or other, you know, money related matters is sometimes because of the myth um, that have been perpetuated. Can you share, you know, some of the most common myths and try to, to buzz them for us? Yes, of course. Um, we get lots of myths from an investment perspective, obviously, because uh, our business is financial planning. Um, I think there's probably four that um, are sort of top of my list. And number one is investing is always the first savvy thing to do. Um, however, I think, as I've just touched upon, you should pay off debt before you get into investing, as interest charges are likely to be more than you'd get from investing. I think it's also really important to make sure you have an emergency savings pot of, say, somewhere between three and six months of your net income or three or six months of your fixed living expenses, just to ensure that you have um, an adequate amount set aside for the unforeseen. So I think that's number one. Number two is um, you need to be a stock market expert. That's why it's important to take advice from an expert in their field and look to conduct some financial planning where you can receive advice specific to your personal situation and your financial objectives. And at NatWest, we use the expertise of Coots, um, whose asset management team will have put together funds and investment solutions that will match a client's risk profile together with their longer term objectives, which the primary point of longer term objectives is the most important point. I think something else that we see as a myth is um, investing uh, is like gambling. Well, I think all investing involves an element of risk, but not all investments are high risk. Each individual is comfortable with a different level of risk, hence why we do an assessment of a client's risk profile. And again, sitting down with a financial planner will always involve an assessment of an appropriate risk approach to meet your preferences and also your objectives. If you're investing for a longer period of time, say for retirement in the future, you could potentially afford to take a little bit more risk as your investment will have more time to recover from any falls in the market. I think another myth is number three would be around um, investing is free. I think whether your investments have a good or bad year, there will be costs um, to pay. Just make sure that you feel you're getting value for money. At NatWest, we offer a transparent flat fee for advice and a variety of options for investing some with lower, some with lower costs. Again, this is also linked back to your personal preferences and your personal objectives. But don't forget, fees could impact the returns you receive. So the higher the fee, the greater drag on your investment. So it's really always important to understand those fees. And then finally, timing the market. Success is about timing the market. That's an interesting one. If markets hit a downturn, it can be really easy to panic and try and cut your losses by selling your investments. Now, investments are volatile by nature and you can miss out on the best returns by selling. Sticking with your original goal for investing, you'll be better able to weather the financial storm. And I think also having a diversified portfolio is a great way to protect yourself against the impacts of market fluctuations on your investments. So I think they're the most common myths that we're actually hearing and seeing. 
Yeah, and I think that's also what what we're seeing um, through you know the community and the conversation we're having when trying to build confidence around around investing. I think it's really important to know that everybody you know thinks this way about about investing, and there's a, there's a, a little bit of a learning curve. But then it's feeling you know being able to start start small, um, plan for the future, invest for the long term, diversify your portfolio. And I love your point about. Uh, thinking about risk, uh, maybe thinking about risk differently and trying to find your level of risk uh, and also not trying to time the market <laughs> because, you know, we're, we're, we're not trader, we're long-term, long-term investors. So, you know, that, that, that's going to be also a great way uh, to, to, to manage your risk. What are some unusual myths that people have brought to you or some that you've been surprising to hear? Things are too good to be true. Things sound too good to be true. And it's where people have had near misses or lost significant money on high-risk investments or scams. And remember, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Trading in cryptocurrencies, there's been a lot of social media adverts in terms of attraction for cryptocurrencies, offering highly attractive risk-free returns. And it's not what they seem. The chances are it's a scam. There's three questions I always advise people to ask themselves. Are you being pressured? Are you being pushed into doing this particular investment? Are they registered with the Financial Conduct Authority? And more importantly, or as importantly, have you spoken to someone you trust about it who might actually be able to help you and spot these red flags? That's really helpful. Thank you so much for for going back to, to scams, because I feel we've seen a lot more people, um, you know, being prone to scams over the past few years. And of course, there's still a lot of shame talking about that if it happened to you. So thanks for sharing sharing these rules and, and always going back to, to the basics and the too good to be true. Um, you know, it's such such an important rule. Now at NatWest, NatWest Premier, you speak to a huge range of, of people. So what difference do you see in how men and women manage their wealth? I think even as society changes and evolves with equality, in many traditional relationships, men still often take the lead in managing the home finances. But it's great. It's a great thing that more women now are looking to improve their financial literacy. I'm very much supportive of that. Now, past research has shown that women lack confidence when it comes to their finances, which has led to various gaps in their savings, investments and pensions. We acknowledge that some of that may have been caused by the historical gender pay gap and women choosing to take time off work for family. However, we believe it's largely down to a lack of confidence, time and, and having a safe environment for women to ask likewise women uh, questions. But I think with our industry, we're attracting more female advisors and it's becoming a, and will become a much safer place in women's minds to actually ask those questions. I think from a fin- uh, financial investing perspective, women are likely to take less risk than men purely because they're more conservative in their outlook from an investment perspective. And we know that there is a long, uh, long-term long impact of women taking time off work, reducing hours to their pension. You talked about you know, this, this pension gap. How can we mitigate that? Because I feel it's it's really unfair to say that, you know, just don't take the time off, right? Absolutely not right. Very much so. Absolutely. There are a number of things to think about. It's sometimes hard to mitigate from the outset, but there are a number of things to think about. If you're employed uh, and your employer has automatically enrolled you in their pension, um, they must continue contributing to your pension based on your pay before you went on maternity leave. If you're self-employed, it's rather more challenging, but you have to decide how much maternity leave you want to take, whether to continue contributing and how much. Now, if you return to work 
uh, you may be able to actually pay extra contributions to make up for any period of unpaid leave. And if you do that, your employer must also contribute. So again, it's an additional contribution. If you go back to work part-time on a lower salary, your pension will build up at a slower rate. So another thing you might want to consider is paying extra contributions. Most pension schemes will let you pay more than the standard contribution amount. I think it's also important uh, not to forget, if your partner is building up a pension pot whilst working, you should also be um, eligible for a percentage share should anything happen, such as divorce in the future. Not something you necessarily want to think about or contemplate, but I think it's important to consider. I think also it's really important for women to think about their state pension, their national insurance contributions, child benefit, together with any uh, making any additional voluntary contributions as well. Tax planning around the marriage, marriage person's tax allowance is always good to look at, together with ways in which you could consider actually supporting yourself going forward. So I think fundamentally, there are things that you can do, but it's more about the information that you need to make those informed decisions. And I love your point about uh, if, if you have a partner and, you know, you've been raising kids with a partner, it's also having these money conversations. And I guess it's a big part of the job you're doing with, with your clients. And, you know, a conversation I had with my with my husband when I had my kids was, you know, can you help me with my pension? So if I'm out of work, can your partner also help you and have these, uh, you know, these, these conversations? But lots of, you know, amazing tips on, on boosting your, your pension. Now you, you work with a lot of, uh, I mean, you work with premier clients. Uh, what differences do you see in how they manage their wealth? I think there's a primary difference that affluent clients generally have more experience in dealing with financial professionals, such as a wealth advisor, tax advisors and legal advisors. And what they then do is pass on that knowledge onto their families, thus enabling them to start planning earlier in their lives. And I think that's what's helped then intergenerational planning in terms of coming back to the point I made about financial literacy. Um, there is a greater element of that within the within the premier clients within the affluent sector. Um, and then obviously they then pass that on to their families. And I think that's the real key difference. And what could we all learn from from these clients about wealth management? It's never too it's never too early to start planning. Start planning early. Remember I spoke about the 50-30-20 rule. 50% of your money towards needs, 30% towards wants and 20% towards savings. Affluent clients seem to think more about their longer term goals for the future as opposed to necessarily living in the moment and thus are in a healthier financial position as they have put plans in place such as retirement and passing on their wealth in terms of intergenerational wealth planning, or even just saving for a rainy day and supporting their family. I touched upon earlier about the importance of having uh, an emergency fund, um, and I think that's where they plan far greater. In essence, see a percentage of your salary as an advance of your future, so you're planning for your future, and it's never too early to start planning. These are really something you can start doing on your own even before you, you actually have a financial advisor. And even with a low salary, you can still start, you know, putting money towards your emergency fund, start repaying your debt and have, um, have your, your budget and start writing your financial goals. You talked about investing earlier. I'd love to have a few investing tips from you for people who have, you know, started investing. Maybe they've started, you know, putting money um, in their ISA, their pension. They start to invest in a diversified way. They're ready to do more. What should they be incorporating into their strategies for next year? If it's tips around an investment strategy, having a diversified fund or portfolio with a professional asset manager is probably my top recommendation, but also to ensure that you regularly review your goals, objectives and your current strategy. 
For example, if you're saving for something in five years' time versus retirement in 20 years' time, often clients may choose to have the same risk approach for both objectives. Investment theories would suggest to us the longer the timescale, the more risk you can afford to take as you can ride out those market fluctuations and hopefully achieve a higher return in the longer term. But a key point here is very important. Always review it annually. Ensure that it's still aligned to your goals and your objectives in terms of what you want to achieve. Finally, what's the biggest aspect of investing in and wealth management that people neglect? It's protection. What if something goes wrong? Now, if you've got a large income, a large mortgage, large outgoings, and you are, you are a partner that you're financially dependent on, becomes a, unable to work, has a critical illness, or worst case scenario, dies early, what impact would that have on your current and your future situation? Very recently, I came across um, a, a colleague um, who had a situation whereby, as a 51-year-old man, owner of his own business, very large income, two young family, um, two young children at a private school, partner was the main carer. Now the mortgage has been paid off, but unfortunately the family can no longer afford to live in the house and can no longer afford them to go to private school. So I think protection is one of the key parts of financial planning, which underpins your goals and objectives and is really important, but unfortunately is slightly overlooked. You just published a research about affluent imposter syndrome. Can you please talk about the disconnect between perception and reality when it comes to finances for high earners? It's a trend that we've noticed in the nation's top earners, earning 100k or more, who, despite sort of falling into the UK's top 2% income bracket, still don't feel their salaries are enough or feel they're wealthy enough. The reality is, whilst they have higher average salaries, many of them have equally higher outgoings, larger mortgages, higher energy bills, increased childcare and increased private education costs. It's a lifestyle creep. And as these earners strive to keep up with those around them, it's, it's a real challenge for them. And, and that is, again, what lifestyle creep is all about. Oh, this is really interesting. Can you actually talk about what is the lifestyle creep? It's an interesting one. It refers, in actual fact, to the phenomenon where discretionary consumption increases on non-essential items as the standard of living improves. So while lifestyle creep, um, luxury goods and discretionary spending become perceived as a right to have and not a choice, it becomes a necessity versus an absolute want, keeping up with the others around you. But the downside um, to this creep is that when income or disposable income decreases, So, for instance, like redundancy, retirement or increased fixed costs like mortgage rates and those repayments on those, people start to dip into their savings. They then run out of their savings as they continue to live above their means. When costs rise, like I said, in terms of mortgage rates, energy, food, the impact is felt as a loss or a downward pressure on what they now perceive as essential expenditure and a feeling of not being wealthy, despite perhaps being in that top 2%. Laura, thank you so much. Would you have one final tip or guidance for our listeners? With regards to planning, I think it's never too, too early to start. I think it's very important to face into a budgeting process, understanding what you want to achieve, understanding your goals and objectives, and sitting down with someone, uh, an advisor um, that can co conduct some full financial planning with you, looking at all aspects of your financial journey and work with you along that financial life cycle. That's amazing. 
that's it from us this year. But before I sign off, I want to say huge thank you to you for listening and supporting this year. It's been a tough year financially for everyone, but I hope we can help a little with each episode we send your way. See you in January for more of The Wallet. Make sure you click to follow or subscribe on this app so you get a little alert when the first episode of 2024 drops. Bye.